another fantastic superstar in the WWE, who is what they would call a, um, hmm, let's see, a, a stiff competitor. Uh, he delivered it in the ring. And there are so many sides to this guy uh, outside of the ring. This week we have John Bradshaw Layfield. Yep, JBL. Let's get to it. Ding, ding, ding. Folks, my guest this week here on Primetime with Sean Mooney has worn many hats during his career, and not all of them in the world of professional wrestling. Along the way, he's also become an expert in the world of finance, and since uh, he's stepped away from his full-time duties with the WWE, he has devoted a lot of his time to helping impoverished kids find a way to a better life. Welcome John Layfield, or better known to wrestling fans as John Bradshaw Layfield, or JBL. John, welcome to Primetime. Uh, it's great being here, Sean. I've always been a fan of what you do, and uh, it's an honor to be on your show. Well, uh, I'm glad that we finally caught up with each other. We met really for the first time uh, officially at a WrestleMania in New Orleans, uh, and where we both appeared at uh, some, uh, something to wrestle with live show with Bruce Pritchard and, and Conrad Thompson. And I have to tell you, really, I, I knew you, you had a comedic side to you, but I'm not kidding. You were so damn funny. I mean, you could also, I think, add to your uh, many, uh, accomplishments comedian. Uh, I mean, that was just amazing that, that, that show. And I know it's not scripted, but, uh, it looked like you had, a, you had a lot of fun doing it. Those shows are so much fun. I, I when Bruce started doing all those shows, I didn't understand the appeal cause I hadn't seen one. And then you see mm-hmm. them live. You realize these shows are so much fun, but as far as the comedic, it's just low expectations. You know, people don't expect much from me. So yeah, I've been, uh, I've made a whole career on exceeding low expectations. Oh God. When you, you know, you came out and folks, uh, you know, these live shows, they do it. It's basically they have a table and they come out and sit there and then you never know who's going to show up, but you kept doing the, you know, the run-ons and with do drugs and, 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 you know, all tongue in cheek, but God, it was, and I was out in the crowd, uh, helping field questions, but man, I'm telling you, I had a ball. I thought it was fantastic. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad we, we finally had a chance to meet in person. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, I went to a uh, rugby event. Very, it was very similar to that. Here's some old legends. And I, I didn't know these guys very well because I didn't go up watching rugby. And they started telling old stories like Bruce does and all his guests do. And it was, I just had the best time. And I realized why people enjoy going to these live events like that. It's, just, it's a wonderful atmosphere and a lot of fun. Yeah, and that's uh, I think that that is kind of the secret to all this is they've kind of uh, – you know, not not just only pulled back the curtain. They've invited people to come there with them, and you know, people just love hearing, you know, kind of this uh, behind the scenes, uh, you know, what went on in all those years, and and it, those they they really are a blast. But uh, you mentioned rugby, and I want I'll get to that. But um, I, I first want to get to what you've been doing lately, and um, you know, you're doing a lot of work on, on, as a financial contributor and host on Fox News Channel and Fox Business News. Uh, how did that all come about? I was uh, uh, the mother of uh, inventions. The mother is the uh, mother of necessity, right? You know, so I, uh, I I played a little pro football. Didn't make much money. I'd like to tell you that I had a problem with uh, drugs and hookers and uh, some great stories, but I don't have any of those. I don't have any of those stories. I just I just spent all my money, but I didn't make much money. So it wasn't like I blew millions of dollars. I blew tens of dollars. 
And I didn't have any money when I got done, when I got finally got cut uh, for my third year because of uh, injuries, either injuries or lack of talent. I'm not sure which one. I like to think <laughs> it's injuries. And uh, I, I saw myself, man, I've wasted three years uh, of making money, and I don't have anything. I literally had $27, and I thought, if I ever make money again, I'm going to figure out what to do with it. And I literally just started reading every financial book there was, and I thought I could write a better book than this. And I wrote a financial book. And then when the wind picked up uh, energy, uh, windmills, all the renewable energy picked up in West Texas, where I grew up, mm -hmm. I had a wind farm planned. I'd, I'd gotten the turbines bought and the land acquired, and then the renewable energy credit imploded, and it killed the margin, so the deal never worked. But the investment bank I was working for, uh, or working with, had asked me, he said, we really like what you did. Would you come to work for us? So I went to work on Wall Street for about three or four years uh, with the, with an investment bank, got certified six, Series uh, 63, Series 7, all that stuff. And during that time, I started working for Fox also because I'd written that book. And it was kind of unusual to have a professional wrestler uh, in finance. So it was a bit of an oddity at first. And then they kind of, uh, I, I guess, liked me. And so I've been there ever since with uh, Fox Business. Yeah, you, you kind of you skip uh, way ahead there was when you really started to become serious about this. And was it, you know, well into your wrestling career when, you know, or, or is this something that, you know, just kind of picked up steam towards the end of it? No, I got really lucky. I started investing uh, when I first got with WWE. It was when I first really had money to invest. And I got lucky with the 97 Asian crisis. So I invested, I think, Oracle and Applied Materials were the first stocks I bought. And I bought them at just the perfect time, not because of anything I saw I just was lucky uh, they'd really dipped during that Asian crisis in the late 90s and I was making quite a bit of money and I thought Ben this is <laughs> this is what I need to do with my money so I, it just kind of snowballed from there and ever since then I've been a, a full-time investor at least with my money yeah and you know you mentioned that it was probably an oddity at first you know somebody said you know this guy's a professional wrestler and you ought to take a look at him because he really knows what he's talking about when it comes to finance but uh, at what point did they say, no, it's not even the fact that he was a professional wrestler. This guy is good and knows what he's talking about, and we need to have him on our, our network. I don't know, and I don't know if it still has gotten to that point yet. <laughs> so uh, I think after some time, you know, I was pretty good at picking stocks, and, and still am pretty good. You know, it's in, in a bull market, anybody can pick stocks, but mm. that was the blessing I had in the late 90s and early 2000s. And... Uh, so I, I think I've just after some time of doing it that uh, they kind of just accepted me as one of them. You know, I, and I, but I think it really, uh, you know, came to light to me when recently, uh, you know, I just saw, you know, how the world of professional wrestling uh, is really a, a part of uh, the entertainment world and even our government. When, uh, you know, recently you interviewed Linda McMahon on the Fox uh, Business News Channel. And, uh, of course, everyone knows Linda, Linda is now a member of the Trump administration. Uh, she's the uh, head of the Small Business Administration. And you interviewed her about uh, her involvement in dispersing billions of dollars uh, to these uh, businesses, these small businesses that have uh, been ravaged, were ravaged by uh, Hurricane Harvey. Uh, during that interview, at, at any point, you say, you know, this has really come full circle or was it another day at the office? No, it wasn't another day in the office. You know, I have a good rapport with Linda, having worked for her for, uh, you know, especially in the, the mid-90s when I first came in there. She was still full-time uh, CEO, president, whatever her official title was. 
And but that to me that was a little, it's a little, you know, it made me a little bit nervous, and it was one of the yeah. first interviews I've been nervous for in a long time. Yeah. And not because it was just a small business administration head, but because it was Linda. So people are, a lot more people are going to look at that. A lot more eyeballs are going to look at that. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure, and I did a good job of setting the table for Linda. I knew she'd be awesome, but I wanted to make sure and do my part. And I, so there was a lot of extra preparation. And, and at one point in the interview, I was just kind of, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, while they're talking and still yeah. listening. You know how it is. And it was, yeah. it was kind of a little bit nervous, you know, because I wanted to do such a good job for Linda. And for the people that would be watching that are also wrestling fans, you know, some rooting for you, you know, a few probably rooting against you, but uh, you, you wanted to do a good job for the business. Yeah, and and uh, did the significance of that uh, hit you? I mean, you kind of touched on it there, but the fact that, you know, here you've got, uh, you know, someone who spent many years in the ring with the WWE, that's, that was the uh, reason that people know your name. And then you've got Linda McMahon, who's, of course, married to Vince McMahon, and here you are. You're just talking business. There's no, there was no nothing else besides, uh, you know, the the subject at hand. Yeah, absolutely. It does hit you. You know, it hits you when he interviews some of these people. You know, I get to interview some some wonderful people. I've interviewed, yeah. uh, man, you name it, some some really cool people from Mike Novogratz, billionaire Steve Forbes, uh, Carl Rove, uh, a lot of people that have, uh, you know, billionaires and people in politics, and. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, it's the old, and you do a great job of this, the old Johnny Carson model is, as uh, exec producer from WWE, Kevin Dunn always says, you know, it's not about you, it's about them. And if you make mm-hmm. them look good, the interview looks good. And so that, to me, is the main focus of, of how I go about this. I want them to have a good time. I want them to feel comfortable. And it does hit you sometimes. You know, I'm, I'm interviewing a really cool person here, and, and it, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's fun to watch it. I know that uh, you know more and more people at first kind of going, "That's JBL, and he's on Fox News." What? <laughs> you know, and, but then they go, "Yeah, it's him." And, and and you know, it really has been an incredible ride for you, John. And and um, I, I want to take you back because people love to hear about the path that uh, my guests travel. And um, I, you were born in Texas, so you wearing a cowboy hat isn't something that was just a gimmick. But you know. Tell me a little bit about growing up there, and and uh, you were quite an athlete. So I'd love to hear about the you know your path to football, and then how it went on from there. Sure. Look, I grew up a huge wrestling fan. My grandfather, uh, who was a minister and retired when I was a young kid in Sweetwater, Texas, lived right near us. He was a big wrestling fan, so we used to watch wrestling together. The Von Erichs, uh, before the boys were there, the Fritz and uh, uh, Brody would come around, and even at that time just getting started and I always wanted to be a wrestler and football was so big though in Sweetwater that I got hooked up in the football excitement and I thought you know I really want to be a pro pro football player and I was fortunate to achieve some honors and get the chance to play for a while then I got hurt and couldn't play any longer and it wasn't like it was a last ditch effort like I I can't do anything else might as well go into wrestling well, this is a great chance to go into wrestling. I was playing in the World Football League. In fact, Jason Garrett, uh, the coach of the Cowboys, was our was our quarterback. <laughs> and I met a guy who had wrestled in Japan. Never heard from him since. Uh, but I asked him, I said, how did you get into wrestling? He said, Brad Rangans in Minnesota. And so I moved up to Minnesota. Brad trained uh, Vader, trained Brock Lesnar. At the time, was recognized as the, the best trainer there was. Moved up there and trained for about four and a half months in his uh, basement, and then started wrestling, started wrestling in Texas and 
got to wrestle against uh, a lot of my childhood idols, the, the Von Erichs, the Freebirds, tag team with Dick Murdoch, tag team with Bob Orton, Randy's dad. You know, it's funny because yeah. I've wrestled Randy a lot, but Randy always, uh, you know, just kind of considers me, even though I'm not that much older. I am older, uh, kind of one of his dad's friends, you yeah. know, because I, I, I <laughs> tag team with uh, Bob in Japan. Yeah. But it was just a wonderful experience. You know, I lived in Europe for a couple of years wrestling for Otto Vance and Peter William, along with Tony St. Clair and Fit Finley, some, some incredible talent over there. And it's just been a wonderful ride. Finally made it to WWE in 95, in and I never dreamed I would be there more than two or three years. Those bad guys just didn't stay there very long. Mm-hmm. I really thought I'd go there for a couple of years, hopefully make a name for myself and go to J- and finish in Japan like Stan did. And... You know, I'm here, I'm still at WWE in some capacity 20-something years later. I'd never dreamed that would happen. That that really is amazing uh, to have a run like that. And, and I always, it, it it's incredible to think, and I've heard it many times from, from uh, some of the most successful superstars in the WWE say, yeah, when I got there, I was hoping if I, if I could, you know, make a couple of years out of it, uh, that would be fantastic. And then, you know, they're talking decades later. So it, to do that is is just an amazing accomplishment. Um, getting back though to, to Texas and growing up there, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know just how rich that, uh, professional wrestling was in those areas. You mentioned the Von Erics, but there was also other outfits there. Um, you know, growing up, uh, what were you watching? I mean, did, was that, was it the local stuff or, you know, we had, at that point in time, cable television was around and, and, uh, we were starting to see other, you know, uh, WWF was on and these uh, other, you know, WCW in its form. Then did you, did you watch all that? Is it, that's what got you in? What was it that you really followed? Yeah, we had very little WWF at the time, very little. And WTBS was just starting up. So we, we, we got it kind of later when I was growing up, but not at the beginning. I, I got the TV. I was at the conflux between, uh, the Von Erich television and the funk television out of the Amarillo. Out of Amarillo. Yeah. So I was in a, place kind of in west texas that both tvs kind of crossed over so that's what i grew up watching i, I never got to see paul bosch or, or blanchard's down paul bosch down in houston or blanchard down in san antonio I, I got to watch a lot of the funks uh out of amarillo and a lot of the von erics out of texas and I, I don't unless you grew up in texas i don't think people know how hot the sportatorium was that place was yeah. on fire i remember i was tagging with i think carrie and kevin and the Freebirds had reunited for a little bit. They walked down that aisle, and that place, I, I still to this day never heard an explosion like that. It, it's really? just, it was just an amazing thing, and I got to be a part of that at the very end of their run, at the very start of my career, and it was the time of my life. It was an incredible honor to be out there with those guys. You know, and uh, I've really uh, done a lot of reading now about uh, you know, the territories, because I'm just fascinated how that all came together back then. And, you know, uh, most people think that, you know, it was, it was Vince that, uh, you know, in the, the mid-80s, late-80s, who really started to take, you know, these territories down. But there's so much history behind it. There was, there was a lot of that going on with these other promoters who were, you know, stretching out and trying to develop territories in other parts of the country, regardless of how, you know, the NWA at the time, that, that alliance of, of territories. But uh, in Texas, you know, you talk about uh, like families like the Von Erics. I mean, they were royalty down there. And uh, those days are definitely gone. But uh, it must have been really 
uh, something to witness like how local communities there uh, followed this uh, type of wrestling back then. It was unbelievable. I got yeah. the honor of traveling some with Kerry uh, Von Erich. Yeah. He yeah. was as close to a rock star as I've ever yeah. seen. He had a presence when he walked in a room. It was uh, it was like Elvis walking in the room. He had the most humble thing. He had he'd shake hands with people and say, "Hi, I'm I'm Kerry Von Erich." Yeah. Of course, yeah. everybody knew who the freak he was. You know, it yeah. they would just melt. He had a charisma that was unbelievable. I, I don't know if I've ever seen anything like it. I, maybe Shawn Michaels in the ring was like it, yeah. but there was nothing like Kerry Von Erich, and they were just God in Texas. Uh, they could do anything, and I, and I mean anything. And they, and they did. Uh, but it was, man, it was an incredible time. Fritz made a uh, mistake. You know, they wanted to take the Von Erichs national, and Fritz said no. His boys wanted to do it. He didn't. Mm. And by the time he decided for his own survival to take it national, uh, Vince and uh, Crockett had already gotten too far ahead of him. Uh, so it was just a mistake. These guys were late to the table. The cable television, when it became national, that was going to kill the territories no matter what. If it hadn't been Vince, it would have been Crockett or it would have been somebody else. Right. Ganya made the same mistake. Ganya could have done it as well and was just late to the table. So somebody was going to take over the, the nation. It just happened to be that Vince was the one that was best at, at what he was doing. Yeah, and from you know uh, your business knowledge... Uh, you've got to be fascinated by how that all came together because it really wasn't, uh, I mean, certainly the product was part of it, but it was business acumen. It was, uh, you know, who was willing to risk more, who was going to get to these areas first. And uh, like you said, if it wasn't Vince, it would have been somebody else, but Vince outmaneuvered him. Yeah. And, you know, people bash Vince. I was in the territories back then when they were all bashing Vince. It was just, the bad guy from New York. They, they hated him because he was taking over, but he would go to these territories and he would say, I'm going to buy you out or I'm going to crush you. He would give them an option of joining him or, or fighting him. And most just told him where to go. They're the old school mentality. It was the boys running the business, which is the worst thing in the world. You want, you know, the, the, the boys are, are just as smart as everybody else, but you want boys that are businessmen, not boys that are workers just running the business and, you know, and kind of having a good time doing it, which was a lot of the case in a lot of the territories. And Vince just had an idea. You know, when Crockett ran uh, that first Thanksgiving show, uh, Vince came along and ran a pay-per-view at the same time. He, he thought he could just do two or three pay-per-views a year. He never dreamed there would be 12 to 20 yeah, uh, yeah. for one federation. And he went in to, uh, to pay-per-views and said, listen, we're going to run WrestleMania next year. It's going to be huge. And if you carry Crockett, you're not carrying us. And yeah. it's just business. You know, he was he's a, a predator, and he was happened to be better than Crockett, who was his best, who was his biggest competition. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to do a, a podcast on that uh, coming up because uh, I think there's just a lot of that story people don't really know, and uh, a lot of those guys they would have done the same thing. They were trying to do the same thing. Vince was just better at it. Of course they were. Yeah, they were all trying. Most well, most of them were trying to do the same thing. Even Fritz later, who was dead set against it, was trying to do the same thing. Ganya tried to do the same thing with uh, ESPN later, but they were late to the table. Crockett was the only one that was even close to competing with Vince, but Crockett just wasn't quite as good a businessman as Vince was. Crockett, you know, Vince saw the close circuit, he saw the pay-per-view, and he was so successful with WrestleMania 1 and 2, he was able to leverage that to keep Crockett out, and that's when Crockett's downfall started happening. 
So, John, getting back to your career, and I, I think it really began in 92 with the uh, GWF. And uh, what were those early days like for you? Were you, were you, uh, you know, this guy floundering in the ring trying to catch up? Did you uh, catch on to it right away? Uh, what was, what uh, were those early years like for you? It was an absolute baptism by fire. I, I went down to the sportatorium and uh, Lou Perez no show to the event. I don't know what happened. I was traveling, he was sick, or just got mad at payoffs. I have no idea. That was Al Perez's working cousin. I don't think they're ever related. Uh, and. So I get down there, and they don't have a main event against Rod Price, who was the champion. And so they said, well, we've got this big kid who played pro football. He was trained by Brad Ryan. This is the first match I've ever had. My and God. so they said, go, they told Rod Price to go take this kid out there as a surprise. We have nothing else. The place was sold out. And he said, take it as long as you can. And he said, if you can go 20, go 20. If you can't, go two. It doesn't matter. Just get something <laughs> out there. So I go out there with Rod, and Rod was a, a wonderful professional, uh, and he carried me for about 20 minutes. It was ended up being a good match because of Rod. And when I came back, uh, Kendo Nagasaki, Mr. Sakurada, had just started booking Japan when he had a split with Tenru. He didn't see the match. He just saw this big kid who played pro football in the main event. So he comes mm-hmm. to me and he says, would you like to come to Japan? I said, mm-hmm. yeah, I've been in business now one day. <laughs> and he says, would you like to come to Japan? I said, yeah. I said, when are we going? It was like two or three weeks later. And I said, okay, great. Well, all these guys in the sport of have been trying to get to Japan. I got there after one day in the business just because of luck. So I go over there, and I'm tag-teaming with Bob Orton. And so Bob pulls me aside one day. He goes, you know, kid, you do some really good stuff, but some of the stuff you do makes no sense. He says, how long have you been working? And I said, uh, three weeks, sir. He said, no, 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 kid. He goes, not how long you've been in Japan. How long you been working? I said, sir, I've been working three weeks. He goes, the hell are you doing here? <laughs> I have no idea. So Bob would take me down to the dojo every morning and just show me some sugar holes and some hooks just to get me through the night. Because those guys, they didn't want to just challenge me right off because I was such a big young kid. They'd blow me up and just beat the living hell out of me uh, every single night, you know, after I blew up. And Bob taught me how to keep my pace. So after about five weeks, I finally started figuring it out and <laughs> figured out how to work a chair, which is pretty easy. You just swing it as hard as you can at a person with a lot of malice behind it. And uh, that's, that's kind of – I got baptized by fire. I was incredibly lucky. Same thing happened in Europe. Uh, the Larry Cameron – who uh, was an American wrestler, had passed away in the ring in Bremen. And allegedly there was some, uh, alleged, I have no idea what happened, some drug use or something that could have happened. None of the Americans came back for that that European tour the next year. I think they were a little bit nervous of what happened and the fact a guy died in the ring. So Otto Vance hired an entire new crew. He's down to the last guy. I'd sent videos, I'd sent stuff to everybody. And at the last minute, uh, Jimmy Suzuki, the Japanese reporter, was in there, and he goes, oh, he goes, I know John Hawk. That was my name then. And he says, you do? And he says, yeah. He's a good boy. Otto goes, okay, I take him. And that's how I got hired because Jimmy happened to be in the office. So I've, I got, I've got a couple of uh, really – my two best jobs in my life just by luck. Wow. And, and uh, you know, I guess it is part luck. But, uh, you know, you, you talk about old school. That's, that's old school days. And um, earning your way, how tough was it? How tough were these guys on you? 
Oh, I would. I got. I got the living hell beat out of me. You know, I was this big, young, blonde kid who had played pro football. I didn't know what I was doing in the ring, and they knew it. And they, I, they took advantage of me from, from go to woe, man. They, they would blow me up. It's just old school, old man stuff. You know, they blow me up, and then just beat the living tar out of me, stretch me, bend me all around, make me look stupid. I mean, that was uh, that was how they did it back in those days, especially in Japan. You know, and it's just, you sink or swim at that point. You either figure out how to make it through or you quit and never go back. And I didn't want to quit. I didn't have another job. So it wasn't, it wasn't an option quitting. And thanks to Bob Orton, uh, literally, he would take me in the dojo in the morning. He'd show me hooks and sugars and all kinds of things about how to get through matches and, and how not to blow up. And he would talk me through it on the apron and got me through it. I finally figured out the style and Ended up loving the style in Japan. It was I had a wonderful time working over there. Probably my favorite place to work. Really, and, and you know your your uh, rise was pretty quick. I mean, you start in '92. By '95, you're with the WWF. Uh, during those three years, I mean, did did it just happen quickly that one thing would lead to another, and you just kept getting uh, farther up that ladder? Yeah, I had no fallback plan. So it's not like a guy who's working part time and. and wrestling part-time i was wrestling full-time i didn't wasn't making much money Dunk, bobby duncan and i were splitting a, an apartment uh, in the hood in, in garland texas it was a bad place uh, it cost us nothing and I, I didn't have a backup plan so i was wrestling every night it's literally seven nights a week and i'd go to the gym and wrestle in the mornings i just i wanted to, i really wanted I, I thought i could make it mm-hmm. and fortunately i was around some great people and i got into some places luckily like japan and europe and broke in in the right way it was a, you know a li- little bit of you know maybe a lot of luck but a lot of hard work too yeah and then uh so how did the 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 path of the wwf uh, wwe uh you know come about when uh you know when you got that opportunity to come up i was uh in europe we, we wrestled over there in the uh, basically the carnival circuit and I would, uh, you know, you have your trailer behind you, you'd wrestle around, you wouldn't have a bathroom in a trailer, you have to go into the building to use it. It was, you know, but it was a wonderful life. And you learn business. And while I was there, somebody told me that Bruce Pritchard wanted to talk to me. So, but way before cell phones, and I didn't have a phone in my caravan, so I went down and waited at a payphone. It was raining in <laughs> Hanover, Germany. I thought, this is crazy. Nobody's going to call me. And the dang phone rang. And it was Bruce. And Bruce said, we want to hire you. Uh, come in through on your way back, and we're going to have a tryout match and see if we like you. I said, well, I've gotten an offer from WCW. And I said, but I want to come to work for you guys. And he said, well, come work, come see us first. We'll see how it goes. And if so, we'll hire you on the spot. And that's how it happened. Went through uh, back to the States, walked in the back and Tony Gurria said, are you on the card today? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm supposed to have a tryout match. He's, and he threw me out. <laughs> I thought, oh, what, the, what the hell are you doing? I said, well, I was so excited about this job and I got thrown out of the back. And so, uh, it was snowing like crazy. And I, I went back to the airport and I couldn't get a flight out. And cause I thought, well, screw it. They don't, they don't want me. And so I stayed. And the next day they were in, I think Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and it was a snowstorm. There was only about 300 people there that day. And remember, you'd put all the people behind the the hard camera where you'd see them so the arena looked full. Right. It was the day Goldust debuted. Uh, the ringmaster, I think, had just gotten there, Steve. 
and I had a match with Savio Vega. Uh, but the only reason I went was because I couldn't get a flight out. And yeah. after the match was over, Jerry Briscoe pulled me aside and said, we want to hire you. And I was still mad about him throwing me out the day before. And I said, well, I'm going to WCW this week. And he said, well, we don't want you to go. And I said, okay, you promised me a contract. I won't go. And that's how it happened. Wow. And, and so uh, did they push you right away? Uh, I know you had some you know, pretty uh, high-profile matches, Bob Holly and uh, you know, a, a bunch of other ones. But did it, did it take a little while, or, or did they push you right away? Hey, you know, it did. I, you know, and back then, the, the that roster was so loaded. I mean, that was yeah, business yeah. was terrible. But that was, I think, probably the most loaded roster in history. I mean, you can argue maybe the '80s, but I, that that roster had everybody. It had the NWO before the NWO. It had Bret Hart and the whole Canadian contingent. Had Undertaker and all of his guys. I mean, had uh, Triple H. The Rock was coming in just a little bit later. Steve was there as a ringmaster. Uh, Kane was there as Isaac Yankel. I mean, that roster was loaded. Uh, but they used me. I worked the opening match for about a year straight against you know Bob Holly most of the time, mm-hmm. also Savio Vega and a bunch. But I got to be on almost every pay per view, not in big matches. I got a few gimmick matches, a few strap matches here and there, and different stuff. But yeah, they used me at that time. There was more of a slow build. You did, you rarely did you have a guy come in straight on top. You know, you had a guy like I guess Papa Shango came in and uh, he'd been there a while. I guess Charles had, but. You had a few guys that do. Most of them were like me. You just came in and, and you you paid your dues and kind of worked your way up, and they saw what happened. So yeah, they took. I thought they took really good care of me. I didn't have a ton of success as Justin Ogg Bradshaw, but uh, you know, wasn't a, it wasn't a failure either. I got to be on almost every pay per view and wrestle every house show uh, that year. Yeah, and in some ways, that's probably worked uh, in your favor to to get there. And then you know, it's it's not an easy place to come in and work and then be successful because like you said that roster was just incredible and it even it's hard enough at any point but that time uh, the the lineup was just loaded maybe it was better that you were able to kind of ease your way in and and you mentioned that the business wasn't great in 95 uh when did you start seeing that tra- you know that transition to where the WWE was getting back on top again when we saw you know the Attitude Era and the Generation X and and the the coming of the Rock and uh, Stone Cold. Yeah, business was not great. It, it was actually terrible. We couldn't yeah. give away tickets. We almost yeah. ran the Sportatorium in Dallas because we couldn't uh, pay the rent at the Reunion Arena, uh, the, wow. the big arena. We had a thousand seats there in that huge arena, hmm. uh, but Vince just wouldn't. The image of running something other than the big arena was something Vince wouldn't do, which was a very smart business decision. But, man, I remember we were getting a $200 draw, and we'd owe the company 50 bucks back because we only got 150 bucks that night. It was uh, Business was terrible. And I thought, man, I've missed the entire boom because it was just after the huge boom of wrestling. And this was probably the worst downfall they'd had in, in a couple decades. Uh, I still remember seeing WrestleMania, I think it was 13, where Sean rappelled down on the pond and sitting there thinking, I'm, I'm not sure I belong here. <laughs> it was He and Bret Hart put on such a hell of a match. I wasn't ready for, for prime time at, at that, uh, not to steal your name. I wasn't ready for it at, at that time. <laughs> I still And so it was good that it wasn't, and maybe it was good even that, that business wasn't that good, at least for me, yeah. uh, because I wasn't ready. Uh, but business overall, it just... Man, we meandered, and what happened was when you had first had Luger walk out on Nitro, Nitro started, and then Vince had to answer. 
that's when it started picking up in 96 and 97. And we were losing badly, and we didn't know if we would stay in business. But that's when it started picking up. And it was so much fun during that time. I remember getting checks and not just taking them down to the bank and deposit them, not even looking at what they were. It was just, you, you worked for fun. I mean, it, it, was, a, it was a great time. But, but was it also when you mentioned, you know, how much fun it was that uh, it kind of seemed like they got to the point, you know, hey, we don't know what else we can do here. Let's see what you guys can do. I mean, it, it seemed, you know, when you, you've uh, you know heard stories from from Dwayne and, and Steve and saying, you know, I just but both of them got to the point like I just was just going to say either I just let go and be who I think I should be on this stage or I'm done. And it's, it, did it seem like kind of that whole atmosphere there that it was just like, let's just see if this works because I think it's a great idea. Yeah, guys would try anything, and, yeah. and Vince was willing to let them try anything because what we were, had done hadn't worked. Yeah. And WCW was throwing everything at us, and they were winning. And so Vince just let, gave guys carte blanche to go out there and try stuff. Some worked, some didn't. Um, some failed miserably, and some, like Steve, there in Milwaukee when he – gives out an Austin 316, you know, sets the business on fire. And what really happened was the Montreal screw job. You know, when Brett was leaving, um, mm-hmm. Vince McMahon, because of the, the whole way the thing played out, became the evil Mr. McMahon character on television. And that character, the when Steve first faced Vince, that was the first time we had beat him right after uh, WrestleMania. You know, we brought in Tyson during that time. Mm-hmm. But if not for the, the luck of that the fallout from that Montreal screw job, I'm not sure if we, I think we would have won eventually, but we certainly wouldn't have won that quick. But it was all the rise of the evil Mr. McMahon that was forced on air because of that uh, incident with Brett that really helped us. Yeah, and also, I mean, that combination with uh, with him in, in Austin uh, just was, was magic. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, like you said, that whole character was just ripe. I mean, it was just perfect. He didn't really have to do anything as far as gaining heat. But I think that uh, Austin played a big role in that, too. Yeah, sure he did. And that, that, that Milwaukee deal was just gold, yeah. man. That was Steve. Yeah. That was Steve yeah. being Steve. You know, he had, but got his lip busted open earlier in the night with a match with Mark Merrill. Wind got sewed up. So Steve missed watching the show. When he came back in, Michael Hayes stopped him. And said, hey, man, just want to let you know, Jake Roberts just cut a very religious promo on you. Uh, just to put it in your head for a promo after the match. Mm-hmm. So that then all of a sudden that Austin 316 gets in his head. That was totally impromptu. That was just Steve being Steve. And Steve probably would have never been in that position. But, you know, you had the Madison Square Garden curtain call. And because of that, um, you had Sean and Hunter yeah. uh, were out of favor at that time. So Steve kind of got a chance there because of a little bit of, of luck from from that event. And, and what did you see happen with, with The Rock when, you know, you, you as a, a performer, as a, a professional wrestler, you, you probably had experienced times like that in your career where something isn't, isn't working or they're trying to put you someplace. And, you know, like he just said, I'm, I'm just can't I'm just going to go my own way. Uh, what did you see happen there with that transition with him? You know, he came in, he's such a good-looking guy, and he was incredibly talented, incredibly yeah. athletic, and, man, it just didn't work. They later did it with Kurt Angle on purpose so that it wouldn't work, mm-hmm. uh, which they kind of learned their lesson. But, I mean, Rocky kind of had no chance. It was uh, 
work it was so badly received that the only chance he really had was to embrace it. And then when he came out with that Rocky Sucks T shirt, that was just gold. I mean the guy just took off from that point. Yeah. You know, but Ron Ron Simmons had a lot to do with uh I think with Rock's uh success. You know, Ron was a great mentor to him in the nation and a lot of the stuff that uh, Rock said, he, he got through banter in the back with Ron. And I think Ron had a lot to do with Rocky having so much success. Huh. And you mentioned Ron, and uh, you know, folks, I think uh, loved loved uh, the Blackjacks, uh, but I think that uh, no one will ever forget the uh, the acolytes and uh, uh, and your teaming with him. What made that work so well with you guys? That was just me and Ron. It was my birthday in, uh, I think it was uh, Baltimore, and Ron and I had been out, and we celebrated my birthday, and I run into Vince, and uh, Vince, the uh, next morning, they said, Vince wants to see you. And I thought, oh, geez, I'm in trouble. So I go in there, and uh, he goes, you look a little worse for wear. And I said, well, I had a birthday. He goes, I know, I bought you a shot. And uh, I said, I think I remember, thank you. <laughs> so I'm waiting for the dress down, and he says, I want to put that on television. I said, put what on television? Yeah. He goes, you and Ron sitting around drinking beer, BSing. He goes, I love that. That's great. That's good stuff. That's what guys do. He goes, that's some funny stuff. You guys got a great rapport. I said, you want us to drink beer on television? And he goes, yes, that's what I want to do. Make it real. And <laughs> that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. So I go tell Ron. He goes, uh, he goes, yeah, yeah, we, are we in trouble? Uh you can still got contacts in Japan. I said, Ron, we're not only going to not going to Japan, we're going to drink beer on television. And he said, what? I said, Vince loved it. He wants us just sitting in the back. He goes, we're not going to wrestle. I said, no. He goes, we're going to drink beer and play cards. I said, yeah, I smoke cigars. He goes, that's the best idea I've ever heard. <laughs> so that's how the whole thing came about. Vince just saw us sitting around BS and having fun like we always do with, with, with Godfather and, and, and the boys. And he wanted to put that on television. It just came out of a friendship with me and Ron. Me and Ron were friends long before we ever tagged. We rode together for years. We've always been good friends. So was that all pretty much just you two? Because uh, a lot of people seem to think during that period of time, and I know that there were a bank of writers involved, but did they just know better? Than to- <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You, you, you couldn't have some of those young writers uh, working with us. They didn't understand it. So you had guys like Bruce Pritchard who would come along and say, okay, here's what we want to, kind of what we want to do. You guys fill in the blanks. Or there was a guy, Tommy Blanche at the same time, same type guy. He's just a good dude. And they'd come along and say, guys, here's what we need. Just fill in the blanks and, and get this done. And that was it. We, we had uh, pretty much carte blanche. The, the bar fight stuff was uh, just awesome. You know, we'd, we'd go set it up in a bar, and guys loved it, man. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Stiff. Very stiff, but a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, you uh, throughout your career, it, it just seemed like maybe it was from your your days uh, working with Orton and the rest of the gang there. But uh, that uh, that seemed to be a big part of uh, what made that work, though. And that and that was kind of that hardcore period where it it was stiffer, and 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 people ate it up. Yeah, and that's how I broke in. I broke in that way in Texas, broke in certainly that way in Japan and in Europe. I mean, those were those were incredibly stiff territories. Yeah. And it was just a matter of the style then. It was, you know, just a different style. You know, we were, Texas and Japan was hardcore way before hardcore was hardcore. You know, ECW came along and they did a wonderful job 
But that stuff existed before. It just wasn't on television. It was down in Texas in a regional territory, and it was in Japan uh, in, in a territory that wasn't televised. Well, you know, though they talk about the uh, the way you work, and and I, I remember hearing the term when I was uh, back in the day. They would call it, you know working like butter, you know, where you barely you, you know the, you didn't touch the guy barely, but it, you made it look great in the ring. I mean, when you work like that, how does your body hold up? Though I mean, that's night after night after night that you're doing that. I think you're just young and and uh, enjoying what you're doing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure an old man can work that way. I don't. I think, you know, it's just a matter of you get beat up, and it's probably why I have so many injuries now. You know, Stan Anson has uh, four joints replaced out of his body. You know, it, it takes a massive toll on you. You're just young, and you enjoy what you're doing, and it's just a lot of fun. You, you know, you walk out there, you hear the crowd, you think, man, this is going to be great. You pick up chairs and beat each other half to death, and, you know, it, it was it was a fun experience, as crazy as that sounds. But do you, did you ever worry to, I mean, now, I mean, uh, all those those chair shots to the head, uh, do, you, do you ever, are you concerned with that? Do you ever have any issues with that now? Yeah, I figure pretty soon I'll be hunting Easter eggs I just hit. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I should be a poster child for CTE. I, I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen. When I first uh, retired, I had a short-term memory loss. Mm-hmm. And I started uh, reading about uh, neuroplasticity in the brain, about how the brain can regenerate itself. And I don't know if it can or not, but I do all kinds of stuff. I play chess. I do a mind game every day. I play chess, Sudoku, learn something different, a, a language, a few words in a different language, something to kind of always express, stretch the brain. And my, my memory has come back completely. And right now uh, it appears uh, to be as normal as, uh, if I can be called normal, but as normal as I know I am. So right now I don't have any effects. Um, I have no idea what the future holds. Hopefully it's, uh, you know, they come along with some metal te- medical technology or maybe I'm the anomaly that doesn't get it. Yeah, well, we can only hope. Um, do you see, though, today we see uh, what a lot of these guys are doing in the independent ranks and even in the WWE where, you know, these stunts, I mean, I don't know else how else to describe them. I know they're not necessarily bumps, but these guys are – you know, flying over the top rope onto cement floors, onto bodies and off roofs. And, uh, you know, uh, does it concern you about what they are doing today? It doesn't seem like there is as much storytelling as there are these, uh, you know, high spots. Yeah, it's just crash from Derby. And I think they're, they're letting the crowd dictate to them instead of them dictate to the crowd. I think that's the whole problem. You know, it's not, you got to be the leader out there. You can't let the crowd lead you because then just good guys win every match. It's, it's not what you need for longevity in the business. And it, it, it bothers me also for their health. You know, we didn't yeah. know. You know, back then we didn't know concussions were bad. You'd get a concussion and come in and you'd be kind of wandering around and you're dizzy. Guys would laugh at you, and you'd laugh at yeah. yourself. Go, Man, I'm screwed up. Uh, you're seeing double, and we now you realize how bad it is. Uh, and these guys know that. And for them to do continue to do stuff like that, I think it's very reckless. I think it's I think it's stupid. Uh, I wish they wouldn't. Uh, that's why I'm glad that uh, WWE has cleaned up. You know what they're doing with no head shots and no chair shots. Uh, they're they're making the business a lot safer. It no, it was unsafe. Uh, these guys today do, and they still do it. And I don't think that's very smart. I mean, don't think it's good for the business, and I certainly don't think it's good for them. Yeah, and, and you mentioned how it's kind of like crowds are dicta- dictating what they want to see out there, and they love this stuff. Uh, like you said, it's kind of like a car crash. But 
what about storytelling? I mean, does it seem that, I mean, I remember, and I know you couldn't do it today because of the attention span, but, you know, you could do an arm bar while you're telling the story for two minutes. Uh, you, you, you can't do that now. And it, it just seems like that is a, that really is missing. And I'm not saying uh, two minute arm bars. I'm just saying about that, that element in the ring where you've got these personalities where a look or what one little move uh, tells part of the story. Yeah, it is. I mean, you used to look at the old pictures of Japanese magazines, and Stan Hansen always had this horribly gnarly face uh, in every picture. You know, you look at yeah. the guy's killing him. And you're looking at going, that's not a real hold. <laughs> once you really look at it, and, yeah. but the the perception is that. I remember one time I was wrestling uh, Eddie Guerrero, and we were on last, and we had to follow the Undertaker. And Taker, you know, he's a dear friend of mine, but. You know those guys back then. If you had, they went on before you. They tried to make sure and give you something you couldn't follow. And he had one of the best matches I've ever seen. And I thought, man, what are we going to do, Eddie? <laughs> they just did everything. Yeah. So we get out there, and I had this idea: we're going to go in the crowd, we're going to go nuts, we're going to start fighting all over the building. And I got out there, and, and Eddie said, "Put me in the headlock, Eddie." So I put him in the headlock. Right away, I called the spot. I said, Tackle, drop down, double arm drag. We we'll go outside. We're going to get in the crowd. He goes, no, 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 just sit here. And I said, what? And a second it occurred to me, of course. You take them down because you want to take them back up. We mm-hmm. couldn't take them any higher. So we sat there, just sat there. Mm-hmm. It was for minutes. The crowd just kind of started getting quieter. They booed for a second. Mm-hmm. Then they just kind of got restless. Then we started the match, and we ended up with them on their feet, just like Taker had left them. But it was all because of storytelling. It was because of Eddie. Mm-hmm who had a perception of the crowd, and he was right. It was something I knew. I just panicked because I thought, what in the world are we going to do? But that's the art of storytelling. That's the art of taking people on a roller coaster, and you left them incredibly happy. If we tried to follow that fire with fire, it, didn't, it would have never worked. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It's waves. If like, You see some of the greatest matches, and you, you have that, you know, the up, and then they bring you down. And then you're like, well, he's got to do something. He's got to get, he's got to come back here. And he's still not, and he's still not. And the guy's still putting the boots to him. And, just, and then all of a sudden, there's that one look or that one move, and then back up. And uh, I don't remember the last time I really saw, uh, you know, something that, that carried you. And, and back then, you could carry the story along for months. You can't do that anymore because they got a pay-per-view the next week <laughs> that changes right. the whole yeah. story. You, you see a few guys that, that yeah. still you know, get into that mindset. Cena's like that. Uh, Cena's awesome. Uh, yeah. Randy Orton's like that. You know, yeah. I don't know a lot of the new guys. I just watch what I see, what I see on television. And a lot of those are truncated matches, so you don't get to really feel you know, what, what would happen if they had 30 minutes or more, you know, which you don't always get in a pay-per-view either. But it's just a complete different mindset. You know, to go from a seven-minute match is real easy. You get out there, you shine the baby face, you go to heat, and then you, whatever the finish is, a 30-minute match is tough. And guys can't make that transition because now all of a sudden you've got to take people on a roller coaster. And you've got you to have several dips and ebbs and flows. And that's a lot harder to do. I, I worked with Undertaker several hundred times uh, during the mid-2000s. We never once would talk over a match in the back because he wanted to get out there and feel the crowd and see what they were buying today because you're in Detroit one day, you're in Pittsburgh the next. Sometimes the same match might work, but if it doesn't, you're screwed. And crowds can be different. Crowds in the afternoon can be different from crowds at night. It's it's crazy, you know, and you never know until you get out there. You know, you were uh, a three-time tag team champion, uh, a WWE champion. Um, What did those 
titles mean to you? I mean, I, I know that you can measure your career also by just where you are uh, and how you're received by uh, the audience, and you know that. But what did it, what did those titles mean to you? When I was younger, it didn't mean as much. Uh, fortunately, when I got the, the WWE Championship, I was older, and I'd been around a while, and I'd already thought my career was over. I'd torn my bicep. I'd had two hernia surgeries. I thought my career was over, and all of a sudden, a uh, little luck happened again for me. Uh, Kurt Angle had gotten hurt. Brock had left the company. Big Show was out. They needed somebody to wrestle Eddie Guerrero in about six weeks at the Staples Center, and they just—it was just luck. And it got thrust upon me late in my career, and because of that, I think I appreciated it much more. Is there one in particular that you remember that uh, that really stands out? That was it? You know, the first one was where you stood in the ring and said, "You know what? I, I've made it. I've, uh, I've I've reached that that point." Yeah, we were in uh, Portugal one time, and it was just a, it was a nothing match, and uh, I was the weather champion. And I had a match, I think it was with Bob Holly or something, and I got out there and I did the old chic stuff, and I said, I'm going to sing God Bless America, and I don't, don't boo USA. I think this is a joke. The mm-hmm. place for 15 minutes sang their national anthem over and over and over, and I'm sitting there thinking, this is the greatest thing I've ever done. This is just awesome. It was so much fun. But yeah, there's, there were some times when you sit there and think, man, this is really cool. Yeah. When, when, it, when, when you, it, it's all started to wind down, John, and uh, you made that transition to commentary, uh, I'm sure you must have thought, I, yeah, I can do this. But was, was, uh, was it enough for you as to, to doing that, or did you miss being full-time in the ring? Yeah, that's a great question, because I, uh, when I first got through playing football, I, I coached a year in college. Yeah. And I was too close to the game. Uh, yeah. I still wanted to play. And yeah. I wasn't a good coach. I think now I'd be a much better coach. I, I don't know if I was as good a commentator. I don't know if I was ever a good commentator. But I, started, I don't think at the very beginning, because I wanted to be in the ring still. Mm-hmm. I think now when I go back, it's just a matter of a guy looking at the at the sport, uh, the entertainment, whatever you want to call it, and just kind of calling what you see according to the storyline. I think now it's much easier. But at the time, it was so quick after I'd gotten done. And I, my career ended so quickly because of injuries. You know, just all of a sudden it was just over. And I kind of missed being in the ring. So it, the, my mindset wasn't what I needed to be for a commentator when I first started. Yeah. Now, uh, we mentioned earlier on in, in talking about, uh, you know, coming up in the old school. And, and you were known to be, you know, stiff with ribs. You would test the boys to see how uh, bad they wanted to be in this business. Is it something that, uh, is missing from the business today, you know, the, the, the hours and hours in the car where you would uh, learn, you know, about the business? Or is it just it's it's moved on and it, it is where it is? I think it misses, definitely. You know, the, the business has changed. You know, our yeah. group could not read a script. These, these guys, a lot of them can't ad-lib because they never had to. Now, some of them probably can. Some of our guys probably could read a script. We just never, yeah. it was just not what we did. And so the business has changed. It doesn't make it necessarily better or worse, but I think the, these guys not having the advantage of, of the, those long car rides and the camaraderie that we had of talking over the business because we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have computers. We had no entertainment except for each other. Mm-hmm. And so you had to talk about stuff of the day. You know, you only could read so much out of the USA Today, which is about the only national paper at that time. And so he, he talked about the business all the time. And I think that part's missing. 
So we talk about old school, John, and back when I worked with the WWF at the time in the uh, mid 80s, early 90s, you know, when there was a dispute, the boys settled it in the locker room. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the way it was. Management was never brought in. I mean, I think today they have like a kangaroo court. Uh, is that element missing? Does that Did that take an, an edge away from the business or uh, is it just the corporate world now? And maybe is this a better way? I don't know. What do you think? You know, I, that's a great question because it may just be the corporate world. You know, we had wrestlers court and it was, it was so much fun. You know, yeah. guys would have a dispute and we had too much time on our hands. You know, these guys have all the distractions in the world. You know, we didn't have anything but the business. We, you know, business was, you know, you didn't have a million cable channels. You didn't have cell phones. You just had the business and things festered because we were on the road so much, you know, and we, when I first started, we did TV just once a month. We did four Rawls, we did four superstars, one pay-per-view, and that was it. Then be on the road for 20-something days, sometimes straight. So things would fester over time. So you had to have a way to get rid of that problem you know, without it coming to a fight or something, which is what no one wanted. Uh, you know, that happened a few times, but yeah. that's not what you wanted. Mm. So we would have, and I think we'll answer both of you both parts of your question, I think it's missing today. And I'm not sure it could ever be done again. In this corporate yeah. world where you just can't, you can't do anything. And, and maybe it doesn't even have a place anymore because, you know, these guys don't have as much contact with each other. So it's kind of like uh, Billy and Dusty of ZZ Top. You know, they haven't spoken in years, but it doesn't really matter because they just show up and play music together. Yeah, That may be part of what it is. We had to live together, basically. Yeah. And so we've had to solve problems. You know, we always had wrestlers court which a lot of people have talked about it was just a, it was a fun event we would look forward we looked forward to wrestlers court i was always the the prosecutor undertaker was the judge we called him the hanging judge because he was always hung over and uh, we had charles Wright, godfather and kane were the bellas but we would take guys to court sometimes over tongue-in-cheek stuff sometimes over serious stuff but it was designed to be entertaining you know we we would i remember teddy long one time uh hadn't uh May, uh, <laughs> Mula's uh, friend, as his uh, defense attorney. It was just fun. People look forward to it. Then you get together, you kind of air out your grievances, and you try to be entertaining. The main thing to do was entertain the boys at wrestler's court. And then at the end of it, Undertaker would always come along with some type of you know, punishment, whatever it was. Usually it was a case of beer and some chicken and <laughs> take the boys out for a party or something. It was always something the guys would enjoy doing together. And you got rid of a lot, a lot of these differences. It was a good thing. It was never a malicious thing where you, know, you get in there and you try to, you know, uh, try to harm somebody or tear somebody down. It was kind of tongue in cheek, ribbon on the square. Mm-hmm. And you would get in there and you try to be entertaining. You try to have fun. And at the end of it, you know, if somebody was screwing up. The boys would be able to say, you know, you don't need to be doing that anymore. We never had a problem coming out of wrestler's court because they always got solved in it. And, mm-hmm. People always left wrestlers court feeling good about themselves, about whatever the problem was. And I'm not sure you can do that today in this corporate world. And I'm well, not sure it's needed because yeah. of the fact that these guys aren't together like we were. Yeah, but is, was there, and, and for bad or worse, it wasn't, you know, it was all fun and roses and rainbows. But at the same time, you said living together as a family. Uh, did that help the product, though? Because... Um, being in that situation, and I remember the competition was unbelievable. And like you said, you you were around these guys, so you knew them, and uh, you came up with scenarios. A lot of it might be a, a bit of uh, real life uh, mixed into it. 
as opposed to, you know, these guys showing up uh, and performing together every other week or something. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, we're not Al Pacino or uh, some other great actor. You know, we're, we're guys who are playing off characters that are better when they're based upon ourselves. So mm-hmm. it's something that we can relate to. And living together like that, you see what these guys are. And sometimes you see stuff in them that they don't see themselves. And, and guys all the time were saying, hey, why don't you try this? Or why don't you try that? And it became of the fact that we were just around each other so much. You know, that's just, I'm not sure it's even possible in in today's age. But it certainly helped. And we had that huge competition. You know, before it was the territories. Then it was mm-hmm. with WCW. It was really us versus them. Yeah. You know, we never had a problem personally with Eric Bischoff or any of the boys over there, the NWO, they were all our friends, but we wanted to beat them. And it was a serious battle and it was really us versus them. And that came about because I think because we were so close. Yeah. And everybody stepped up their game because like you said, it was a competition. It was, it was business. It was putting food on your table. Right. Because if we didn't, if we didn't win, we didn't eat. (laughs) We didn't know what would happen. We didn't know if, if they won and put us out of business that we would have jobs. We had no idea about that. We were literally fighting for our survival. And I think they thought they probably were too. So yeah. it was a really heck of a, it was a good battle. And it was the same back in the territory days. You know, you, you had battles with other territories. You're always trying to encroach on your talent, encroach on your business. And it was really an us versus them. And you, you know, we're fighting for your own survival. We didn't have yeah. we didn't have safety nets, you know. We didn't have pensions. We didn't we didn't have yeah. a, a, a big nest egg that we could simply rely on. We were we were hand to mouth, and so it was a matter of survival. Yeah, I mean, really independent contractors. You guys were uh, businesses of your own. And and looking back now, John, on that career, and I don't know if you feel that you know your timing was perfect to be in the business. It certainly has brought you a lot of fortune, and I don't mean just financially. Uh, as you look back. Uh, what is your view of, of your career and what professional wrestling has brought to your life? Well, it's gave me everything. You know, mm-hmm. I've gotten to travel the world. I'm a kid from a small town in West Texas, and I've got to travel the world. I've got to live all over the world. I've been over 70 different countries, all seven continents. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been just a wonderful ride, and all of that is because of professional wrestling, 100%. You know, the, the job I have now on Fox uh, is because of that. But the businesses mm-hmm. I'm doing on side are because of that. So, it was a wonderful ride. I, you know, I wish, uh, you know, you always have looked back and said, I wish I could have done a few things different. I, I wish I could have been healthy longer. You know, because when I, when I, when I first made it, uh, you know, I was at the my peak earning years, and that's when I got hurt. My body just gave out on me. I wish I could have had another four or five years, but everybody says that. So yeah. I'm not nothing new. I mean, Michael Jordan was the greatest of all time, and he wished he could have four or five more years. So that's nothing new. I, but so looking back, it's I look back with nothing but pleasure. I wish I could do it all over again. It was so much fun. You know, and uh, as I mentioned at the top of the program, uh, besides all the other things you're doing, but you have committed a big part of your life now to trying to help kids, impoverished kids in, uh, on the island of Bermuda. But I know you're, you're expanding this. And we share a love here of uh, the game of rugby. I uh, was uh, fortunate to play at the University of Arizona when I was going to school and just fell in love with the sport. I know you have since. I know you discovered it later in life. But it really is. And I remember, I mean, it changed my life completely. I, I, I was able to travel to uh, other parts of the world that I'd never gotten the chance to do. Um, but you see also how it, uh, it brings people together 
and talk a little bit about your your organization, the foundation you have beyond rugby Bermuda, and and uh, and what how you got involved and and what it's doing for kids there. Yeah, I was living here in Bermuda, and I was seeing a lot of the gang issues that, that go on here uh, with the murder rate and with drugs and, and the violence and kids mm. dropping out of school. Like almost any inner city, we're a small island, so there's not technically an inner city, but same type of kids, at-risk kids. And I wanted to do something to help. And, and I met a guy down in South Africa when I went to the 2010 Soccer World Cup, and B- Nick Keller, who ran Beyond Sport. And I started talking to him about it. He said, man, you should set up a, a program that uses sport to help kids. And I said, uh, you know, I, I always want to be a coach. That would be perfect for me. And American football, you need 22 players. You need equipment. Right? You need a ball. And that's yeah. it. It's yeah. like soccer. It's a, it's a beautiful game. And you can play five on five, 15 on 15. And for inner city kids, especially rugby is perfect. It gets out yeah. a lot of their aggression. They get to hit each other. And rugby is a sport with incredible ethos of respect. You know, guys always help each other out. They shake hands afterwards. Yeah. And you fight like the Dickens out there. And afterwards, you, you sit down and have a meal together. It's, it's part of the game. It's a wonderful game. I think America is really going to embrace uh, rugby. Our U.S. men's Eagles team 15 had an incredible year last year. Our seven teams ranked number one in the world right now. I mean, I think America would will love us more like rugby. It's actually a lot safer than football. So I, I still love football. I would love it like crazy. I'm going to be watching it uh, all throughout the playoffs and the college football bowls. But it's a sport I think Americans uh, will embrace. It's also a lot safer than because of no helmet. You don't you have a different way to tackle people. Right. But to bring this to kids, to give them something to look forward to, We've had a great success here in Bermuda of keeping kids out of gangs, keeping kids out of jail, and keeping them in school. We, we won an award a few years ago out of 17 countries and about 7,000 programs for being the best we're working with at-risk kids is because we put together a program of really good volunteers, and it's really an island-wide initiative to work with these kids. Yeah, and it's amazing. You know, I, and I think I mentioned to you before, my, my nephew, Ryan Mattias, is uh, a U.S. Eagle. He's uh, with the 15 side right now, and uh, it, it's it's – really great to see how America is beginning to embrace rugby on a bigger stage. And I, and I always wanted to see it happen, but, uh, you know, people think of, you know, kids in Bermuda and everybody's like, well, God, it's this wonderful tourist place. Well, everywhere you go, there are, there's poverty. And I know you're also trying to expand this program. How's that going, uh, in the United States? Because I, I totally agree with you. I think that there's no better game, uh, to help kids out. And, uh, you know, and that it embraces more of this camaraderie than rugby. Yeah, there are some terrific programs. There's a program down in Memphis right now, uh, Memphis Center City Rugby, that's run by uh-huh. Shane Young. He's just a wonderful young guy, and they're doing incredible things down there, working with some of the worst poverty in the country using rugby. There's groups all over New York. Mark Griffin has found and played Rugby USA that just does incredible work uh, in, in Harlem and, and all of the boroughs of, of uh, New York City about 5,000 kids in the program. They're taking some school graduation rates from the teens to the 80% ratios. It just does incredible. I was just in India uh, over the last six months visiting rugby programs in Mumbai in the slums. And same story. It's just, yeah. you know, the people out there are doing incredible work. And people are doing incredible work in spite of the governments. You know, people say, how much government assistance do you get? We get zero. And yeah. I don't want anything. You know, governments are... You know, they're inherently self-serving. Some are corrupt, but uh, you don't want to deal with these guys. You know, you want to deal with private enterprise that's funding things for the right reasons. So how can people, if they wanted to contribute, 
uh, help out the program? We don't have a website for, for that. I, we, mm. I took it down because it was so out of date. We have a Facebook right. page. I would rather somebody just go and find a local sports program and support it. Uh, you know, there's Beat the Streets in New York City. Uh, Mike Novogratz, a billionaire, funds a lot of that program himself. There's it's Beat the Streets in Philadelphia. I would go on Beyond Sport website. And I would reach. I would try to find out any sports programs in your area, because yeah. uh, sports for change are, are doing wonderful work all over the world. There's about 2,500 programs at least on the, the, the Beyond Sport all over the globe that are doing incredible work. Uh, they actually, Spirit of Soccer was actually crippling ISIS ability to recruit because they were putting the soccer facilities in refugee camps in Syria and Iraq. I mean, there's some, there's some stuff happening out there that is just. Somebody's going to actually get a Nobel Prize. It's it's so good. It's really heartwarming to see. Yeah, and I tell you, sport is no matter no matter what it is 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 really a powerful uh, driving force for kids, and I, we need to see more of it. Sean, I do want to one thing before we go. Uh, oh, I've sure. got a business venture that that uh, that I'm going to debut. Uh, hopefully, well, not hopefully. I'm going to debut in the next few months. It'll be something with uh, Bruce Pritchard and Conrad. It's not a wrestling podcast, uh, uh-huh. and uh, some. Uh, I don't want to give anything more away. We're, we're going to debut something. I think that's going to be pretty cool. You know about it, but it's, uh, we're doing something I think really cool that we're going to debut. So kind of watch this space. We're, we've been working on this for about a year. We're pretty excited about it. Oh man. I, yeah, I, I, I was, uh, I was kind of afraid to touch that, but you know, I'm glad you mentioned it. It gives everybody an idea to, uh, to watch out for it. Okay. So, uh, you yeah, ready for a quick anything more away Cause I don't want to, you know, I don't want to tip the hat before it's done. I can mention Bruce and Conrad. They're my dear friends. Bruce has been one of my best friends for a long time. So we're doing something together, and uh, hopefully it's uh, it's going to be something uh, really big. People will have a lot of fun with it. Oh, man. I can't wait till the uh, details are out. John, thank you so much for joining us here on Primetime, and I can't wait to see you again. Sean, it is a true honor. You're a good friend, and I love uh, being on your show. Thank you.